0: We're glad the kids are in the room this morning. And here's something we like to do. Here's something I like to do when we go before the text. So I would invite you, I know you just were standing, but would you please, everyone, would you please stand as we go before the text this morning? Hey kids, this is something I like to do. Um, Did you know that God actually talks to us? That there's actually words of God that we can hear and we can listen to and then we can respond to. So one thing that I like to do is when we read God's words in his Bible, we stand for them. It's one way that we can tell the difference between my words, which aren't as important— and god's word so we stand so that we recognize that this is important we're going to hear from god right now so the first thing we do is we stand the second thing i like to do is actually to recite a prayer and this prayer is an old old prayer that people have been saying and praying for generations for a long long time and it's a prayer that that's called the shema which means to hear to listen kids have you ever heard your parents say listen to me Right? Raise your hand, kids, if you've heard your your parents say, listen to me, right? Well, this is God saying, here, listen. I want you to obey. I want you to know the best way to live. And so people for years and years, hundreds and thousands of years, have been praying this prayer of Shema, of to listen, to hear, to tell God, I'm hearing, I'm listening, I'm obeying. And before I hear your words, God, I want to tell you that. And then you can talk to me, and you can tell me, what it is you want to say. So say it after with me, or say it after me. And kids, this prayer is not supposed to be a nice, quiet, polite prayer. This prayer is supposed to be a passionate, God, I'm all for you. So I want to hear this, the energy that we have in this room this morning when we do this. Amen. And parents, you join in. You you meet them at their level. We're saying, God, we're going to hear your very words this morning. And so we want to be ready for it. So say it after me. Hero Hero Israel. The Lord is our God. The Lord alone, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. We are in Revelation, friends. We're starting our summer series on Revelation. I am excited for it. I hope you are too. I hope you come expecting to hear the very words of God this morning. And so we're going to be in Revelation 1, starting in 1 through 6. Revelation 1, 1 through 6. This is the very words of God. It says this. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words. We're doing that right now. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you, and from him who is, and who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever, ever. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. So it's been a busy week in the long home. Both our daughters' birthdays are two days apart from each other, right around uh, Memorial Day weekend. So every kind of week leading into Memorial Day weekend is very busy for our households. There's, there's uh, things to do, there's decorations, there's presents to wrap, there's houses to clean. That house is plural, we only have one house, but one house that we clean. But my favorite part, anytime the Longs have a birthday, and I've said this before, is Molly's cake. I love Molly's cake. She always makes a different cake for our kids. And this year, she went above and beyond. This year, I don't know how it's going to be matched. This year, Molly made, and hear it now, cookie dough filled cupcakes. Can I get an amen in the room? Okay. Cookie dough filled cupcakes. Okay, we got a little round of applause going on. All right. There we go. Cookie dough-filled cupcakes. None of that gross fruit filling. Get that stuff out of there. I don't want anything like that. Now, Dan and Barb Richbard, they were over at our house yesterday. They were helping out a little bit with the party, and they got to taste the sweet nectar of the gods. This, yeah, there they are in the back. They are cheering out. They will attest that this was an amazing cupcake. Now, I have this random... Memory have you ever have like these memories from your childhood and they're like they're not significant. They're not like big events or anything They're just these really weird kind of random memories. I have one of those about eating a cupcake Remember I was a kid. I was at my uh, aunt and uncle's house. I was I think it was someone's birthday or something I was eating this cupcake and now for me as a kid when I ate a cupcake I always ate the frosting first then the cake then whatever filling was sort of left over at the end. Now, I did this not because it was my preference, but because literally I had no idea how else to eat the cupcake. Like, my little brain could not comprehend another way to eat it other than one at a time. Well, you start at the top, I guess. You eat the frosting first, then you eat the cake around it, then you eat the filling inside. Now, on that particular day, my father was watching me destroy this cupcake I was eating. And he he watched for a while. He kind of just observed. And then finally he asked me, he goes, hey, Bri, why are you eating it like that? Like he was perplexed. Why are you doing that? I was equally perplexed. I said, what do you mean? How else are you supposed to eat a cupcake? Literally, I had no idea. And I remember he looked at me, he smiled, and he said, take a bite of the whole cupcake. And it was like this revelation, right? It was like this revelation, like opened up in my, like all the worlds collided at that point. And I realized there was a, there was another way to eat the cupcake. I don't know why I didn't notice everyone else around me also eating it that normal way, but I, I guess when a little boy has a cupcake, nothing else matters, right? And he said, you should take a bite of the whole cupcake. You see, I didn't know how, literally I didn't know how to approach the cupcake. And so I thought you had to do it a certain way. You had to do it kind of individually and in stages. You just take one at a time, or just one, like my son, who doesn't like cupcakes, except for the frosting. So he'll only eat the frosting and leave the rest away. And my dad said, no, 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 take a bite of the whole cupcake. I didn't know how to approach the cupcake. I literally did not know how to take it in. And I feel like when we talk about the book of Revelation, now Revelations, but Revelation, we don't really know how to approach it. It's like me as a seven-year-old boy with a cupcake. We kind of look at it and are like, do I eat the top first or what, what do I do? We're like, what, what's, go, what's going on here? We don't know how to approach the book. It's very intimidating. In fact, everyone I've talked to, I've probably talked to about 20 to 30 people in the last month, and have told them, hey, we're starting a series in Revelation. And almost without a doubt, I get the, oh, boy, okay, good luck to you, right? That, that's the reaction. Because most people, uh, including myself, really even come to this, how, how, do you, how do you go after it? Is there some sort of framework that if, if we knew kind of the, a, a, a more healthy, a more faithful approach, it actually it wouldn't be a book or a letter that was intimidating, but actually one that speared joy and hope? and relevancy, how do we faithfully approach the book, or the letter, I should say, of Revelation? Well, let's take a look. So in this opening line, as we were reading today, we read the first uh, six verses, but in that very opening line, John, who is the author of this book, he tells us how to understand the letter. He gives it to us right up front. He says, this is the revelation from Jesus Christ. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, the word revelation is apocalypse. Literally, that's what what it means. It's the Greek word for apocalypse. Now, apocalypse doesn't mean the end of the world, despite what Hollywood wants to tell you. The word apocalypse literally means to uncover or to reveal. John's saying this... This is something to help you uncover something. I want to reveal something to you. An an apocalypse is when you see something the way it really is. You see, we all develop ways of kind of seeing the world, and we get these blind spots to how the world works because we're used to a certain particular way, a certain rhythm of how the world works. And then God comes in with an apocalypse, a, a revelation, an unveiling, and uncovering, and all of a sudden he pulls back the curtain and gives you a look at what's really going on in the world. That's what the point of the book is, is to reveal something that's hard to see, but I'm gonna pull back the curtain and let you actually see the thing behind the thing that's going on. And Jewish apocalyptic literature uses symbols, symbolic imagery, and numbers in order to communicate those things. It's metaphoric. It uses pictures mainly from the Old Testament and current events at that time to reveal and show what's really going on underneath the surface. Let me give you an example. Kids, let's play a game. So you're driving in the car with your parents, right? And you see a red light up ahead. What does a red light mean? Stop. Thank you. What does a green light mean? Go. What does a yellow light mean? Ah, Does it? Ask your parents. Sometimes it means speed up a little bit, doesn't it? It's a symbol, right? We know what the color red means. And so when we're driving, sort of the rules of the road is that there are these symbols all around the road that kind of tell us what to do. They don't have to spell it out. They don't have to write a whole paragraph. You see a picture, an image, A light. And it tells you what to do next. It uncovers a truth underneath the surface. This is why we use phrases like, oh, I got the green light. Now, if you took that literally, you'd be like, what is that, what do you mean you got the, the green light? But we all know the symbol. We, all, we know the picture behind it. And so we don't have to say the whole thing. We can just say, I got, I got the green light. It was green lighted. It's good. Oh, okay. I, I know what you mean. This is what Revelation tries to do. Now, sometimes we're told what a symbol means uh, right out front, but more often than not, the author assumes, and in this case John, is going to assume, you know your Bible and how to trace an image through the biblical and historical context to get its meaning. So he's not just going to come out and say it. He's just going to slip it in. And assume, because you have a knowledge of the scriptures, you would be like, oh yeah, I, I know what you mean when you say that. Yeah, yeah, I remember that theme. It, it's been weaved in all the way through. So when we get to here at the end, I know, I know, yeah, I know what you mean. Let me give you an example. Revelation was a, was a circular letter addressed to specific churches in a specific place. The Roman Empire. Now the Roman Empire was the world military superpower of the day. And the Roman emperors, the Caesars, believed that they were sons of God, God incarnate in this world. They believed that as the sons of God, they were sent to earth to bring about universal peace and salvation and should be worshiped as such. Now the early Christians, they didn't really groove with this idea too much. They didn't believe in this. They believed that if somebody or anything else set themselves up as a god, they were in direct opposition to the real god. Love the Lord your God and worship him only. So they looked to scripture and they saw in places, like places like Daniel 7, and they saw how other empires and other kings who asked them to do this were described. And so they read places in Daniel 7 like this. In Daniel 7, it says, Daniel said, In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me were four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. And four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth. So if you're an early Christian, You know the scriptures. You said, yeah, yeah, we've had those things happen before. In fact, they've had four great kingdoms, four different kings, four different kingdoms, four different beasts. Babylon, Assyria, Persia, and the Greeks. These beasts have come up before. So if you're an early Christian and you're going, we need to be on guard to make sure that no other kings or kingdoms come in and demand worship That's not the true God. Well, then we need to rise. We need to to be alert and take guard. We need to look for the next beast coming from the sea. And they'd use that language. The beasts coming from the sea. We will worship no other God besides the one true God. Now, at the time the world was ruled, at the time that Revelation was written, the the world was ruled by Roman Caesar Domitian. Roman Caesar, Domitian. Now Domitian, he took this whole son of God thing way too serious, a whole nother level. He demanded that his wife refer to him as my Lord and my God. Sound pretty good? Kids, have you ever heard your mom call your dad uh, my Lord and my God? Is is that something that happens in your household? No? Didn't think so. He demanded to be worshipped everywhere he went. There are writings uh, there uh, around that describe a choir of twenty-four singers who would go before and after him, singing and chanting, "Our Lord and our God, you are worthy to receive honor and glory and power." Let me actually show you a, a sculpture of Domitian. This is Domitian. Domitian. And kids, uh, when you look at that picture, what is he holding in his hand? A script? What, what do you think that is? Yes, what is it? Shout it out. A scroll. Domitian was holding a scroll. So scrolls were really key for the Caesars a scroll would contain all the divine names of that Caesar because language was big, propaganda was big for keeping power. And so you use language intentionally in order to hold power. The scroll would have had all the names and reasons and rights he had to rule. And so it was said that the Caesar was the only one who was worthy to open the scroll, meaning to rule over human history. Only Caesar is the one who is able to open the scroll and rule over human history. Domitian revised a series of Olympic games he called the Capitolins, and it was a way to show his dominance and power and majesty. The opening ceremony of these games would include a corporate worship to Domitian. He had a group of priests who would lead a mass in songs and chants, They would all wear white, they'd all have crowns of gold on their heads, and they would have the divine titles of Domitian sealed on their foreheads. One Roman historian, his name is Chautonius, and he said this, Domitian, he wrote, quote, Domitian loved to hear hail to the Lord. Now the first event served as a kickoff to these games, the chariot races. And the colors of these these horses were black, White, red, and pale. I'm not making this up. At the end, they would have gladiator matches. Afterward, somebody would come out to collect the dead and would wear a mask of a classic god called Hades who would collect the dead, who was the god of death in the ancient world. Now, if you're a Christian in that time who's trying to hold on and trying to preserve, and all of a sudden you get this letter From John. He says, I've received a word from from, from the Lord. And you open up this letter. You understand the pictures. The winks, the nods, the symbols, beasts. Yeah, yeah, we know what you're talking about there. 24 singers, scrolls, white robes, crowns, colored horses, forehead seals, Hades collecting the dead. Yeah, we know what that is. That's Domitian. That's Rome. That's what we're up against. You see, Revelation was written in a specific time to a specific people. And so there's this way that then was developed, a way of reading Revelation that's been developed over time. How do we approach, how do we read Revelation faithfully? Well, this way of seeing Revelation is called Petrism, which comes from the Latin word that means the things of the past. Now, Petraism believes that Revelation's visions have mainly already occurred. When you read Revelation, you see all the symbols and and say, yep, that equates to that, and that goes here, and that's who that means, and they read everything is primarily already accomplished in the first century. When you read about beasts and 24 singers and scrolls and white robes and crowns and colored horses and forehead seals and Hades, the first thing you should do is to ask the question, what did this represent? Where has this theme already played out in the Bible? What first century situation might this be referencing? What is trying to be unveiled to the original audience? Because Revelation is a letter written to first century churches who faced emperors and empires and asked the question, Is it worth it? Is this all worth it? And so a faithful approach to revelation begins by looking to the past. A faithful approach to revelation begins by looking to the past. First century churches who faced emperors and empires and asked the question, is it worth it? Now, it begins by looking to the past, but it can't end there. Or we will miss a bigger point. It can't end there. Many uh, who've studied the book of Revelation notice that John bookends Revelation with, two, with one certain theme. At the beginning and at the end. So in the first chapter, he says things, and we read it already, the revelation from Jesus Christ, which, gave, which God gave to him to show his servants what soon must take place and then two verses later he says the time is near then in the last chapter he says in verse six what must soon take place verse seven look i am coming soon verse 10 the time is near verse 12 look i am coming soon verse 20 yes i am coming soon You see, he's creating this expectation that all of this stuff is about to go down, like imminently. It's going to happen right now. Jesus is about to bust in, so get ready. And this belief was fairly prevalent in the early church. Many in the early church believed this, that at any moment, at any time, Jesus was coming back, and we've got to get ready. James talks about it in in chapter 5. The judge is standing right at the door. In John, First uh, John, it says, "Children, it is the last hour." And just as if you heard that Antichrist is coming now, many Antichrists have appeared. For this, we know that this is the last hour. In fact, Paul was writing several letters to the churches in Thessalonia, and he addresses these end times ideas. Uh, really directly. It's probably some of the most direct time he does it. But what's interesting is right in the middle of all that talk, he addresses in both letters, in both 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, he talks about idleness. And that we shouldn't be idle in these, end time, in these last times. And many have come to believe that there was this idleness problem in the early church because everyone believed Jesus was coming back, like, imminently. And if that's going to happen, why go to work? Right? If Jesus is coming back any time, like, let's, let's go for it. But here's the kicker. We're still here. 2,000 years later, here we are. One scholar calls it the elephant in the room. I love that. That like, oh yeah, we, we may have done the math wrong a little bit. We're still here 2,000 years later. So this has led to another approach to Revelation called idolism. So if patronism is something that looks to the past, idolism looks in the present. So if we got the timing wrong, if Jesus is more playing the long game for his return, we should read Revelation as a guide to help us continue to live faithfully today. The forces and conflicts in Revelation occurred soon from their perspective, but it is also our on struggle to preserve and to persevere In the present. In that regard, we have been living in the end times right up until today. And as John puts it, even now, many antichrists have appeared. We've seen many beasts, many Domitians throughout history. This is not just their story in the past, but it continues to be our story in the future notice, John, when he addresses Revelation, he addresses it to seven churches specifically. Why did he choose seven? There were certainly more churches at the time. Why not address it to everyone? Well, as you might be aware, seven is a meaningful number in the Bible. It means completeness or wholeness based on sort of that seven-day cycle of the week that was established in creation. So when John addresses the seven churches, it's another one of those winks or nods to say that this is for you guys, but this is for everybody. This is for you certainly. But I picked seven for a reason, and this is an ongoing revelation. Because revelation is also written to us, who face new emperors, and new empires, and ask the question, is it worth it? Is this worth it? So a faithful approach to Revelation begins by looking to the past, which guides us in the present. So a faithful approach to Revelation begins by looking at the past, which then guides our understanding as we then apply it and as we live it out in the present. Looking to the past, which guides the present, but it still can't end there. Because if we miss it, we will miss even the bigger point. Because there has to be a culmination. There, ha- there has to be some sort of fulfillment. There has to be a finale. This is, it can't be the way the story ends. And this has led to one last, or another approach to Revelation, which is called futurism. If patronism is from the past, and idealism looks to the present, futurism, as you can expect, looks to the future. Futurism views Revelation as representing specific events that primarily have yet to happen. Right? If Petronism is looking at the events and the symbols of Revelation and saying most of those things already happened in the past, Futurism says we're going to look at these events as things that are yet to come. They're they're mainly happening in the past. Therefore, futurists look at particular uh, occurrences in the world and oftentimes attempt to connect them with symbols in Revelation. Right? I went to a Christian high school uh, growing up, and uh, we had chapel every Friday. So every chapel, we crowded in, we had to wear a little tie, so we, you know, we had all our clip-on ties, and we went to chapel every, uh, every Friday. I remember one speaker in particular. He got up, and he was convinced, and he, for half an hour, tried to convince us that the mark of the beast, the 666 written in Revelation, was the WWW on the newly created internet at the time. And he was convinced of that. And he was telling us, if you're a follower of Jesus, get off the internet. Because it's the mark of the beast, WWW. And he had some way of like W's in some ancient, you know, literature, some ancient uh, language meant sixes. And he, you know, he traced the whole thing back. But He was like, get off the internet. Right? That's that's an example—and it's an a extreme example, right? I'm trying to make a point here, but it's an extreme example. But it's an example of futurism, saying, these things that are happening, we have to—we're going to we, we're gonna look ahead, and we need to be watchful, we need to be mindful, and we're going to see these things, and we're going to figure out kind of the sign of the times. We're going to try to figure out what it looks like to us. Futurists also tend—and I'm—I'm—I'm— I'm, Brushing with broad strokes here, so I understand that. But futurists also tend to be interested in discovering the specific season of the Lord's return. Many attempts, as I'm sure you're aware, have been made over the last 2,000 years to date when Jesus is coming. But once again, we're all still here. So they were all wrong, right? Like They were all wrong uh, to date. Now, futurism comes from a good place. I don't want to knock this or make it sound like uh, I'm, I'm knocking this, this approach. Futurism comes from a very good place. The world's a mess, and we want to focus on the end. Absolutely. But like the other two, it doesn't hold up on its own. It doesn't hold up on its own. So let's put the whole thing together. A faithful approach to revelation— begins by looking to the past, which guides us in the present as we hope for the future. That is a holistic, faithful approach to reading Revelation. When you read a section of Revelation, you should ask, what did this mean to them back then? What Old Testament references are they using? What kind of things that in that specific time, in that specific culture, what are they drawing on to make their point? That information and that understanding is going to guide me in how we live faithfully in those principles today while recognizing that the story's not over yet. That the story's not over yet. A faithful approach to revelation begins by looking to the past, which guides us in the present as we hope for the future. I'd like to call the band up as we kind of reflect on this for a minute. Friends, what I'm inviting you to do is take a whole bite of the cupcake. I'm inviting you to take a whole, when we approach very difficult, and we're not saying this is easy, but when we approach a difficult text like this, I'm inviting you, friends, to take a whole bite of the cupcake. But the frosting alone, it'll give you a sugar high, but it won't satisfy. And you can go for the cake, but it's, it's going to be dry. You can attempt to get in there and get to the filling, but it's, it's not going to be enough. What God is inviting us into is to take a bite of the whole cupcake. Because if you only read it from a past orientation, then it isn't relevant. We learned what was going on in the early church, but it doesn't really speak to our own circumstances today. And if you only read it from a present orientation, it isn't hopeful. It was bad then, it's bad now, and there's no end in sight. And if you only read it from a future orientation, it isn't joyful. Because futurism, on its own, tends to invoke fear. Things have to get worse. I have to look over my shoulder. I watch the news to decipher the sign of the times. I'll tell you what, you saw that bumper video before I came on? It was really hard finding a bumper video for Revelation, let me tell you, that didn't involve gas masks, wars, or bombs. In fact, uh, uh, <laughs> I want to show you an example, if I can. I want to show you an example. So you saw the one we had. Here are one of my options for Revelation. Take, and kids, don't get scared. We're laughing at this, but take a look. Yeah. The tolling bell at the end, that's a nice little touch, right, there at the end, right, with the, right? That's what it invokes. Fear, anxiety, things have to get worse, looking over my shoulder, what's gonna happen next? But a revelation that's not relevant, that isn't hopeful, and that isn't joyful, isn't the gospel. Because Revelation was written to those in the past, to us in the present, and to our children sitting next to us right now in the future. What if when we mentioned that we were doing a Revelation series, the response instead was, oh good, my heart really needs that right now. It's been, it's been a hard season and I just need some hope right now. Oh, we're doing revelations here? Yes. Because I need to know. Is it worth it? I need to know if it's worth it. Because I saw how they used to do it. I read these pages. And they they were literally getting martyred. they said, it's worth it. And I look at my own situation right now. It's been hard. We know it's been hard. And we need to know it's worth it. And our children sitting next to us, they're going to need to know in the future that it's worth it. In the face of growing, a growing progressive movement in Christianity that is questioning and redefining and reinterpreting the gospel, something that can drive us into doubt, we need to know, is it worth it? In the face of family curses, and for some of you, you are first-generation Christians who are breaking generational chains for your children next to you. And that will always be met with opposition. That will always be met with with heartache. That will always be met with oppression. And you need to know. It's worth it. And in the face of navigating a rapidly changing world, we who are unwilling to bow the knee will say to the empires and emperors of our day, we will not worship you. Because it's worth it. Because in the face of a past and present and future suffering, the gospel proclaims a past, present, and future answer that Jesus Christ died on the cross in the past. It is finished. And is alive with us in the present. I am with you always. And will return again in the future. I am coming soon. Friends, it's worth it. Friends, we're going to do a series on revelation. And it's worth it. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what soon must take place. He made it known by sending his angels to the servant John, who testified to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take heart. What is written because the time is near. John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who will to come. Who is and who was and who is to come seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, the ruler over all the kings, all the emperors, all the Domitians of this world. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom, a kingdom of, and priest to serve his God and Father. To him be glory now let Amen. And now let's proclaim that with another symbol. Which revelation they'll get to later on. We'll get to this symbol. But we've talked about this enough. It's the table. It's the cup. It's Jesus saying to a group of disciples who are about to go through that persecution too. And Jesus says to him, them, Hey, we're, we're eating this now, but I'm going to eat this now anew with you later when we enter the kingdom, when you come before my table, when we all celebrate this when, when I come, when I return, when everything's put back. And so do this as often as you eat and drink it in remembrance of me and remembering I'm coming soon. So if, you would, if you've got one, just pull off that tab. Friends, it's worth it. Worth it. This is the body just broken for you for the forgiveness of sin. Do this as often as you eat in remembrance of me. And take that cup. The cup of the new covenant. Pour it out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it remember me and it's worth it let's take to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom of priests to serve his God and Father to him be the glory and power forever and ever amen